0: Welcome to CurveBeam Connect. Listen in monthly as we talk with doctors and experts in the field discussing innovations and insights into orthopedic imaging.
1: Thanks for tuning in to CurveBeam Connect. I'm your host, Binti Singh. Director of Marketing here at CurveBeam. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Stefano Beini, who currently serves as the Chief Technology Officer for the UCSF Department of Orthopedic Surgery. So we talk all things tech and digital health. It was so great to get his perspective on some of the technologies that are really going to be shaping the future of orthopedics. So let's dive in. Good morning, Dr. Beini. Thank you so much for joining me on CurveBeam Connect.
0: Well, thank you, Vinti. Glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Yeah, so good to see you again. So for anyone who might be outside of orthopedics or the knee specialty, could you provide a little bit of a bio on yourself? Who are you? How did you get started in orthopedics and, and some of the, high, the highlight reel, basically, of your career?
0: Wow, that's a, that's a... Okay, well, the med, my medical history uh, starts out at UCSF when I train, did my orthopedic residency training. I did my fellowship in Italy, actually, the Zoli Institute. It's a, it's a huge place, 20-odd operating rooms going all the time. Just orthopedics is a phenomenal place, learned so much. Came back... Spent, uh, four years, actually 15 years eventually at Kaiser Permanente where I did, uh, I was a chair of orthopedic surgery for a couple of departments and then did some administrative stuff and got very, um, engaged with the registry that we built there at the time to, to really track patient outcomes. And as a result, uh, I was publishing a fair bit, got involved with the American America Academy of Deep Surgery for quite some time. And also then later the American Association of the Knee Surgeons and, um, that led me to an academic career. I eventually joined UCSF in 2015. I'm a full professor uh, of clinical orthopedics here, specializing in primary and revision arthroplasty, hip and knee surgery, and recently acquired a robot. Very excited to uh, move that forward and also um, gotten very involved with digital orthopedics in many other ways and, and conferences in that space. But my mm-hmm. clinical space is really in this uh, world orthoplasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, most keen in that area on uh, rethinking the way we do knee replacements and promoting mm-hmm. this new technique for traumatic alignment.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you for that background. So you and I actually met in person uh, just a little less than a month ago at the AUKUS annual meeting in Dallas. Given your background and expertise in digital health, as well as orthopedics. I'd really like to get your take. So one concept or technology that was presented on the podium, as well as one concept or technology from the exhibit hall that really intrigued you from this year's meeting.
0: So Vinti, that's great questions. Um, as always, uh, the the issue with, uh, from the podium it was a lot covered. You know, ACUS is very focused on policy and politics as much as it is on, on digital health technology. That is the hardest area to get into in terms of uh, our hardest conference to get a podium at. Mm-hmm. So it's amazing, amazing talks. You know, just off to- off the cuff, I'm glad that we uh, looked at the gluteus medius as a mm-hmm. problem. I know that's not what everybody else might think about as the key topic at the moment, but we had a good conversation around. An, an area that I think is still underappreciated under in terms of its importance. On um, the concept side, technology side, I think what you're seeing finally is we're starting to see more um, interest in the use of artificial intelligence and machine mm-hmm. learning to try to identify uh, risks and not just a risk for a specific outcome, but also see if you can identify the informa- informa- enough information that we can then use to uh, in- impact impact that um The results. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I think we're seeing increasingly on the vendor side in in the rooms, companies like yours Mm -hmm. and others bringing new technology to the forefront. And interestingly enough, seeing that pretty much all the companies had a digital. Uh, the big boys, the the strikers, the Johnson Johnson, the the, the you know the Pews, the Zimmer Biomet, Smith and Nephew, cetera, that have sections in their groups dedicated to digital health and technology.
1: So we're definitely seeing that evolution taking place. I know that you mentioned that your hospital just got a robot. How else is digital health impacting the surgical cases that you're doing on a day to day basis?
0: That's another great question. Now, one of the things that we, we're seeing in the use of technology in healthcare is that sometimes the applications that are most common are the, not the sexiest ones, are the most, mm-hmm. you know, they're, not, they're not really about changing patients' lives. They're more like a, a managing the hospital care system. Mm-hmm. So, we mm-hmm. definitely have a number of technologies in place at UCSF to help us manage everything, every, all aspects of intake from the referral management tools that actually scan the imaging. The, the referrals are still faxed, so you need to, we need to develop a software that can actually do optimal character recognition to, to mm-hmm. scan those referrals and, and put them in the right position. We're, we're working closely with our IT people to develop platforms for patients to um, self-refer we have a surgical scheduling platform that's in place to help us manage patients um, using that technology. We have a patient engagement platform that gets the patients ready for surgery, follows them throughout surgery, those after surgery. The, those are the kinds of technology we're seeing there. The robotic stuff, the really cool, happy, you know, futuristic stuff is, is mm-hmm. definitely starting to hit the operating room. The uh, robotic surgery itself is projected to be a very fast-growing area of orthopedics. Mm-hmm. The challenge that the companies are having are always going to be consistent. It's a relatively high cost of the deployment of these technologies right. up front and has to be recuperated with an ROI. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, reading the literature that I have been tracking, that ROI has become increasingly clear and is okay. decreasing variability. And the mm-hmm. variability very is what drives readmissions, drives complications. and we're seeing lower costs over the 90 day episode of care consistently mm-hmm. um, across all databases that are not that are not necessarily biased, like there are Medicare mm-hmm. databases, there're statewide databases, and I think that's useful uh, metric
1: mm-hmm. that's that's great to hear. So on one side, Technology is really helping with logistics and just operations so that doctors and staff can focus more on actual patient care. And then the robotics are actually, we are seeing that they are having an impact on outcomes. And uh, that's, that's great. So I just came back from the RSNA, which is the Radiological Society of North America annual meeting. And one of the takeaways that I got was that For 3D printing, orthopedics is actually the number two discipline that's leveraging 3D printing uh, just behind cardiology. There was a Gartner study that said it was projecting that by 2021, so by this year, 25% of surgeons will practice on 3D printed models of the patient prior to surgery. Is this at all happening at UCSF? Um, And if so, what impacts or benefits have you seen? And if not, what do you think are some of the uh, steps that it will take to actually get implementation?
0: Okay. Really good question. And it actually ties into imaging, it ties into um, visualization, problem solving. So, so let's take that one piece at a time. So mm-hmm. 3D printing requires some form of imaging CT scan, MRI, usually CT scan from mm-hmm. which you then create a 3D model. That 3D mm-hmm. model can be used to visualize the complexity of surgery. One thing that's interesting about orthopedics is we're dealing with hard tissues. Mm-hmm. They don't beat, they're don't, they not don't squishy, they don't move out of the way, they don't change shape, which is not true of, say, all the abdominal organs. So we're fortunate to be able to, have a, um, to work with a material that is hard mm-hmm. and therefore can be modeled and therefore we can be printed. So we're definitely mm-hmm. the right people to work with these sort of models that is a subset of the surgical specialties that would be most affected or can use these models most easily. Mm-hmm. So yes, 3D printing of complex pediatric deformities, spinal deformities. In my case of hip surgery, uh, we've seen a fair number of good applications using a modeling model in the pelvis mm-hmm. where there's lots of bone loss from prior uh, implants that have failed and, uh, and have had a reaction that led to the absorption of bone around the implants, resorption of bone around the implants, so that you can actually visualize and see uh, what that space will look like when you get in there. And I tell you, I find it very, very helpful. The next generation of that, however, is that you don't necessarily need to create a 3D model. You can create a 3D hologram of that same tissue and visualize it using either uh, obviously a headset, a VR headset or an AR headset. But also you can use it using a phone, an iPad, doing you know, a flat screen. And then um, the, the technologies allow you to do that. I actually work with a company that's doing this. And it allows you to take that same 3D model without printing it, uh, do the segmentation. I'll come to that in a minute. Create a 3D model. Then you can literally manipulate it with your hand in front of your screen and tilt it up, down, however you want, as if you had a 3D model in hand. Right. And so that, that makes it a little bit easier to access right Cause you can carry it with you on your phone the whole time they have in a, a pocket some mm-hmm. these 3d models to be bulky a number of companies are using 3d mm-hmm. model print they print 3d models for their surgeons right. and then send them a, a, a 3d model of the custom implant which otherwise a surgeon can't access because it's just sterile and they don't see it till the day of surgery and they'll send you a custom a custom plastic device along with a custom 3D printed model of the bone that it's going to go into to make sure that it fits perfectly. And uh, and you can see how it's going to fit. You can model, you can put your hands on it, put it together, and at the time of surge, you have that cognitive feedback that's like, oh, I, this is exactly how it's supposed to feel. Oh, it doesn't mm-hmm. feel quite right. What, what's missing, what's getting caught? Mm-hmm. The reason I mentioned segmentation is that that still is a – so segmentation turned out at the beginning of all this it was a bit challenging. Somebody had to literally go in every scan right. and outline the bone. And what we're using with machine learning nowadays is the ability for the uh, camera, it's called camera vision, is to look at the scan at every cut and actually auto-segment it and maybe have somebody go review it real quick. But as we get closer to, closer to better auto-segmentation, 3D modeling, whether it's in, in, um, in virtual reality or in, 3D, or in actual 3D models, it's going to be increasingly um, useful and easy to adopt. But it's if that, if that I want to be able to push a button on the scanner to so give, mm-hmm. give me the 3D version of this right. as opposed to have to have something good.
1: Right. So you actually see that we're moving beyond the need. I was going to ask about does UCSF have a 3D printer on site, but you're actually talking about even moving away from that completely and just moving to a, a virtual platform where you have a virtual 3D model that's just as dynamic and useful as the, the printed piece that you can hold in your hand.
0: Right. We actually do have several 3D printers. Uh, okay. We even have a little lab for the residents to go play in. So um, no, 3D printing is a and well at UCSF, fortunately for that. And we even are doing metal 3D printing. There's a, and they actually spun off a small company. Looking specifically, it kind of came out of UCSF uh, oh, okay. uh, labs because they're getting busy enough to go and build their own company. So actually, that went up working out pretty well, yeah.
1: Great. Yeah, I think that's become pretty commonplace in, in dentist offices and, and uh, orthoped orthodontist offices. Yes. So very interesting to see that, that we can expect that to become more commonplace in, in orthopedics as well. Yeah. I do love that you brought up machine learning and AI because that kind of leads very neatly into my next question. So... Again, sort of converging orthopedics and radiology, um, especially because curve beam um, is very much in both worlds. So, And because of your involvement in building joint registries and also because you've written papers about big data, I I was very excited about getting your take on this. So, for example, there was an article that was actually just published yesterday in osteoarthritis and cartilage which uh, is titled three-dimensional analysis for quantification of knee joint space with weight-bearing CT comparison with non-weight-bearing CT and weight-bearing radiography. The reason I bring up this particular study is that they analyzed joint space with On the CT scans, so both the weight-bearing and the non-weight-bearing CT scans, and uh, they were able to do it with the aid of software. So an interesting point that they brought up in the discussion is that right now, the manual process for segmenting bone, that's the big holdup. That's what's really preventing this from going from the research space into the clinical space. But there are companies, um, full disclosure, including CurveBeam, but other companies as well that are working on technologies that utilize machine learning to create auto-segmentation tools for these data sets. And so once we start using machine learning in AI and build intelligent algorithms that are able to take a data set and and segment it within minutes, some of these tools like three-dimensional joint space analysis become much more practical in the clinical setting. So my question for you, and this kind of comes from also a a policy uh, sort of slant, is machine learning algorithms get stronger the more data sets that you are able to feed them what are your thoughts on how could we potentially leverage some of the data that's already sitting within these joint registries or some of the data that's maybe uh, sitting within different health systems and is siloed? How can we ethically and efficiently get those data sets amassed so that we can feed them through these algorithms so that we can build these intelligent deep learning models that can account for all of the variations in pathology like uh, arthritic conditions and some of these other major deformities so that we can really progress these um, algorithms to the next level and more quickly bring auto-segmentation and and auto-measurements into the clinical space.
0: Right, so convolutional neural networks is going to be what's going to drive the adoption with the ability for us to do auto segmentation. That's a branch of machine learning which is sort of relatively cutting edge, not so much anymore, but it's becoming the, the technology necessary. One of the misunderstandings is that how much data we actually need to create these networks. To be effective, it's not like by face recognition. Pattern recognition is a little bit easier on in orthopedics, and so we don't need millions of data sets, of data points. We can probably do with tens of thousands, I mean, even hundreds sometimes, depending what you're mm-hmm. trying to image. So, the quality of the image on which we're using to train our our um, algorithm is actually as important, if not more important, and how it's and how well it's it's annotated. But we're that's going to come pretty quickly. You're going, not, and not just CT scans, the 2D to 3D imaging world is coming along pretty quickly as well. And then we we'll need to figure out just how, uh, the, how accurate it has to be. If it's sub millimeter, it's going to take a while, but if it's a millimeter or less, we might be able to get there quicker. The idea of uh, the, the, what we've learned recently from CT scans, and for those of you listening who don't understand the difference in a weight bearing and non weight bearing CT scan, if you're in a CT scan supine, the joints open up. We don't really can't really tell how much wear there is in the cartilage. Whereas when you're standing on it, you see with the bones that should come together because there's nothing to prevent it, which is what we consider wear. And that's where we get into the problem with pain and dysfunction of the joint. So the ability to actually quantify how much cartilage loss there is in a non-weight bearing image is quite helpful. And if you then can do that three-dimensionally, like curve beam is doing, creating, giving you the, the multi dimensional imaging. These start to really get into a better qual- quantification of the amount of damage that's happening at a joint that is helpful to understand. Partly because frequently, it's really quite common, there's a lot more damage than we see on a plain x ray and somebody with a um, Significant disease may not get the treatment they need as a result, or we may underestimate the, the extent to which we need to operate on them and, and solve their problem. Uh, also, for tracking, where over time tracking the impact of uh, biologic uh, medication to uh, to affect the uh, to affect how uh, arthritis is progressing, all those things will require volumetric uh, evaluation of the uh, of the joint space uh, and whether what's in it, cartilage, liquid. I'm really, Those are the three things that can be in there. And so, yes, I agree with you that we're going to move forward to an algorithmically driven segmentation that is getting better and better. I'd say you see a clinical applications over the next two to three years. It won't happen over the next two or three months because it all has to go through. Once you start creating a visualization of bone, that may lead to a surgical decision-making. The FDA is going to have something to say about it. So it needs to be reviewed and, called, and, um, and tested and all that stuff. So whoever said that in the article, that we need to get this out of the lab and into the clinician's hands, and it's all around segmentation, I think mean, they're right.
1: So two to three years, that's actually not that far away in the grand scheme of things. So you've written a book on change management. And I also looked up a paper that you wrote last year, called Digital Orthopedics, A Glimpse into the Future in the Midst of the Pandemic. And this was a quote that I thought was really interesting. You said, contrary to the claims by most startups seeking funding in Silicon Valley, digital adoption does not have to be disruptive. So taking that idea, and then also the fact that, again, two to three years, it's really not that long of a time. There may be surgeons who are hesitant to trust what this new methodology that's, that's based on measurements made in a 3D space that are made by a computer that can't necessarily easily be validated manually. From a change management perspective, what do you think it might take? Uh, the technology might be ready, but what might it take for this to actually be adopted as the new, potentially new standard of care, even if I could throw out that word?
0: It's, it's an interesting question, right? Because why is it that faced with overwhelmingly improved technological options, people across the board tend to not adopt them? Why does adoption take such a long time? The iPhone did not did not do well the first couple of years it was out. People wanted that keyboard. Mm-hmm. Cell phones, a big deal was expensive, but they also had issues with connectivity when they first came out. One of the issues that we have with technology, people basically don't trust it. And so they need to have the experience with it, and need that experience meets the expectation. That's one. It has to work. Mm-hmm. For example, usually with something like uh, this volumetric work that we're doing, you're saying, I have this data, and the surgeon's going to have to open a couple of knees and say, oh my gosh, that was actually accurate. That really did... Mm-hmm that script, what I saw, and they actually didn't show me all that, now I know. So once you do that two or three Mm -hmm. times and you get that positive feedback loop, it's actually quite sticky. The other piece that people tend to forget is that if people, if there's a problem in healthcare, we do very well without fixing it. We've been dealing with problems and living with problems for such a long time that we just, we do workarounds. Pain points are usually the ones where people actually go about adopting technology that enable them to address that pain point. So the pain point is something that if you if you could do something about it tomorrow, you would do it. It's, it's, it really ruins your day kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and so I always see that when you either put out a product or launch a technology or uh, in, implement a change management strategy if the folks that are dealing with the problem see it as a problem, see it as a real pain point, they'll adopt it very quickly. And that was a lot of what my book was about was how do you empower teams to to solve their problem, the problems that they perceive to be important, as mm-hmm. opposed to what maybe management sees to be important. Because at the end of the day, the management doesn't realize it all f- flows in together, mm-hmm. but Given the opportunity to solve their own problems, teams tend tend to do so. And I think when the technology is presented in such a way that it clearly solves a pain point, and it does so at a price point and an and an adoption point that is manageable for that particular person in that particular environment, then they tend to get adopted rather quickly. And then there's the the delay, right? Then you've got the the People at the cutting edge, you got know, the, the middle, and then you got the, the laggards, the be people behind that won't, you know, they'll really have to be dragged because they know what they know and they know what mm-hmm. they can do for them. And mm-hmm. they've learned it and they're just very reticent to change. That is a natural progression. So the trick is to get your early adopters to go in and say, yes, this works. Figure out the, figure out the, uh, the details, pass it on to the bulk of the population, and then eventually transfers over. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so uh, using those same concepts that apply to, to many industries. Um, exactly. We could, yeah, so we'll, we'll be able to see adoption happen. I do want to go back to a point that you said. I thought it was interesting. In the orthopedic space, it's probably not going to take millions of data sets to train the algorithm, um, yeah. maybe thousands. Do you think that the joint registries potentially have a part to play in collecting those data sets? Um, you know, a, a common theme. And conversation for those in this space is how do we prevent bias? How do we make sure that data sets are, are properly representing all parts of the population? Is, is there, from an ethical perspective, a role that the registries can play in making sure that what is being fed into these various algorithms is properly representative?
0: So, let me clarify. The- the reason you don't, you don't need a million white males age 65,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Mm-hmm. But if you got a hundred white males age 65 and a hundred white males age 55 and you had you had females and you had people different colors, ethnicities, social, zip code, blah, blah, they get into millions of data points, mm-hmm. but you don't need a million of the same thing to train an algorithm. That's what I was, that's sort of the, 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 the difference in mindset that that people have to get or get their heads around when you're looking at machine learning and AI in terms of what kind of data it needs, and then the data itself has to be clean. Plus, it has to have a lot of data, has a lot of. Unless you have okay, if you if you have a million data points of white males age sixty five, what you can then get into are things like um, the, the the software can teach itself what every data point is. Right. So it's not it's not really tagged for the for the software to know what that is. That is an eyeball, that is a nose. If it has a figure out it is, then yes, you need more data points. It gets it's it's obviously more complicated than I'm trying to make it sound. But conceptually we 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 can we can get a long way there. Okay. And sometimes the data is biased if you have a limited data set. Understanding where your biases are are actually one way to one way to solve the problem because then you simply go find the data set you're missing. Registries were never really designed, in my opinion, to collect the kind of information that you need to do machine okay. learning. They already have a very hard time getting very basic things. Name, age, weight, gender, procedure performed, and if they got readmitted. Once you start adding more layers, like an actual digital file of an image, or you want to get socioeconomic data, or you want to get BMI over time, or you want to get some, It gets... Beyond what they can get from the institutions that are contributing the data, the best they can tend to get is this patient board outcome measures, which outcome measures which are very flawed, mm-hmm. but also very old. And so, you know, they came from a different era, very, very Bayesian mindset in terms of how data is collected. But one thing that you can you 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 did allude to is how do we get how do we get this data so we can do these algorithms, which is really the end point if the registries aren't it. A couple of things. Data is data is fungible. Data is an asset. It can be bought and sold. There's this idea that we have to get data for free. Why don't we get data for free? We pay for data everywhere else. I think we're going to. I think companies that want to develop data have to buy it. The other thing is um, that there's something called synthetic data, which is the ability to create a data set which is. Statistically equal to but completely separate from the original data set from which it came from, it allows you to replicate data sets and then remove all the HPI issues related, to, which is not the same as de identifying data. Because if you have enough information, you can always identify data point back if you care enough. And so there's, there's some issues with cybersecurity there. These are completely new data sets. There would be, if it was you and me, they would, they would come up with two different humans. But you not They wouldn't have our statistically. They would behave the same way, but they wouldn't be you and I. You couldn't say, "Oh, that looks just like you." So, but be, but the software, the, the data would behave as if it was you and I. So, I think that's increasingly <laughs> becoming looked at. Um, there's some really cool companies doing work in this space.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Can you say that uh, term one more time?
0: Synthetic data.
1: Synthetic data, very interesting. Yes, and I think so. That brings up a good point. I absolutely agree with you that there is a cost to data, and so the the people who need it to build these algorithms um, can pay that price. On the under other end of it, how do we get surgeons and patients, and also other stakeholders in the healthcare chain? How do we pr- properly educate them on the benefits of A, sharing their data, B, how their data is properly anonymized, secured to get them comfortable with the idea of their data contributing to these, to building these new systems, and how do we best convey to them the benefits of participating in these large projects and and contributing their data to these banks so that they can then be used to build the technologies um,
0: of the future that will improve patient outcomes in the long run. So there's there's a multi-layered answer. Data sharing and data interoperability, which are two closely tied and dissimilar concepts, so data interoperability in of itself, accessing the data, getting through pipelines, understanding it is, it, it, it isn't super simple. Sharing it under current laws with the HIPAA restrictions is requires institu- institutional review boards or right consents. It's, uh, requires a fair amount of work, right? So if that work is, comes on top of a very, very busy schedule, significant challenges in in, um, in in just reimbursements. I think I don't know if you're familiar, but Medicare slash reimbursements to physicians that I was proposing to next year, significant cuts that have been for the last 20 years, I think physician income has gone up. So physician income has not gone up compared to inflation since the 70s, I think in terms of overall, if, if it has, it's not much compared to, say, the cost of hospital, hospital costs and insurance costs, et cetera, which have ballooned. Mm-hmm. And so you, you're talking about asking folks to do some extra work, which is not compensated and there's no time for. So it's a, that, that's a, that's a challenge. So, so you're probably not going to get the physicians, your regular non-academic physician to contribute. Mm-hmm. In the academic setting, it also has to have some formatting in the context of research project, the things they're doing. So you've seen the, the radiology departments, of course, are collect this information, going through, going through that process and doing it. But then putting it into some generic data bank that everybody can access and run their algorithms on, that's an NIH kind of problem that isn't happening. There is the osteoarthritis initiative, which is actually probably the the one data set that we're all accessing to do this kind of work, uh, which is really quite good. And that was funded. It's a not-for-profit concept. It's available to all of us uh, without a fee. And that's really helpful. But you're right. There's so much more data we get all access. And and how could we uh, use it? And I, I don't know if it's a – I mean, one could argue we could go directly to the, to, the, to the patients, to the ones that actually own the data in theory mm-hmm. and have been contributed to a, an, an anonymized data bank. Uh, it would be very hard to keep it totally anonymous over time if people really wanted to look at it. Um, but there's plenty of people who really don't care that much who probably contributed to it. That, the, ability, the question is, so how do, we have, how do we create a large data set that everybody can access – to run algorithms and uh, optimize the, um, this is a difficult question. It's going to wind up being individual companies that have access to this information mm-hmm. will have the access to that information. They're not going to share
1: mm-hmm. it. Right, right. Okay. So no easy answers there, unfortunately.
0: No mm-hmm. easy answer here.
1: <laughs> well, you know, Curfium is hoping in the long run that we can contribute to that in some way, shape, or form. Um, but very uh, interesting to get your your viewpoints and your thoughts.
0: I mean, a company like Kirby you collect. First of all, you have a much richer data set than than most people other than CT scans, right? So you, you collect them in three dimensional mm-hmm. imaging. No one has mm-hmm. that, I don't think. I think mean, it's just you guys. Everybody else has two dimensional images, and we're going to get to two D, three D at some point. But right now, you basically have mm-hmm. that, and then the CT scans and MRIs. The question is, how do you how do you correlate those two those two mm-hmm. data sets? And I don't know if you're planning to create a a public data set of images, and maybe you could you could come with consortium with companies like Siemens or Philips, uh, GE that actually had the machines collecting the CT scans and rides. Is there a way for them to share? But I tell you, just getting that information off that machine and in, in, in the hospital or in the clinic and into the cloud isn't obvious because yes, oh just file because of all the security <laughs> stuff. You can't just say okay, every file that gets collected goes into this cloud. The hospitals have a lot to say about that. And they, they don't want uh, to be, they're not going to be, that's going to be a challenging thing to do.
1: Yep, yep. And that and that's why I think it becomes ever so important to convey to all the various stakeholders what the benefits are uh, of, of doing that, of, of allowing the data to enter the cloud and, and to uh, be used ultimately in ways that are going to benefit the patients. But it's a... Uh, it's a very, like you said, a very nuanced question, And um, but I think as we progress beyond the strictly technical questions or engineering questions, these are the the larger, broader questions that have to be thought about and, and definitely worth discussing. So those are pretty much all of the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything that you would like to add maybe about the uh, DocSF conference that is coming up in just a few months here? Would you like to make a pitch, maybe uh, encourage people why it might be worth attending?
0: Yeah, no, it's funny. Before our call, I was on the phone with Intel. Another company we'll have there, um, their digital health division, uh, we'll have Google there. We'll have, I'm trying to get Meta there. They're they're excited to be there. Uh, Microsoft, the big the big folks that are working, at, they're not the standard, you wouldn't think of them as standard healthcare companies, but Dr. Seth this year will focus very much in the future of orthopedics. Mm-hmm. Now the, what we're going to talk about in orthopedics is going to apply to pretty much every other element of especially the surgical specialties in medicine but we do focus on orthopedics because it's good to have a use case against which to, to test your assumptions and mm-hmm. thoughts. That's a big part of it. The other half of it or the other Third, one other third, So one third is digital piece of the future. The other is digital transformation. How do we get from here to there? Because there's a lot of misunderstanding um, that which is like we talked about earlier. You drop in a technology into an environment, and automatically it automatically works. No, you have to actually change the workflows. You have to understand it. As you point out, the value proposition has to be very mm-hmm. clear, and then get people to actually try it. And it's hard to get people to change. There's no question about it. And the third part is we call uh, doctors of science that the evidence for change. Change, but we'll be actually doing a review of the best papers and research that's been done the past year that now finally shows that the data uh, backs the adoption of these technologies. It's not just completely science fiction that we've got years and years now of information coming off these machines, 3D printers, whatever it is that we're using mm-hmm. to showcase the value that this is bringing to healthcare whether it's patient care, with diagnostics, uh, or resource mm-hmm. management. So we're going to bring in science, we're going to bring in futuristic companies, startups, established uh, companies, uh, showcasing what the future could look like and have people really it. So we'll have actors, we'll have videos, we we'll have movies, we'll have VR headsets. We'll do all that to really get people to be 15 years from today. That's our target. And then also bring in, uh, we're hoping to bring in companies like Deloitte and and, uh, these Mm -hmm. these consulting firms to showcase to us what happened under the industries, how they did the transformation. So we expect it to be April 27th, 2029, 2022, a really experiential and fun event. And we have a small event around JP Morgan this um, January 9th. Sunday evening, looking at the investments done in musculoskeletal care this past year, what it means to the industry. And then we have four uh, futuristic uh, visionary uh, surgeons talk about the OR of the future as well. That's all happening on Sunday evening, uh, January 9th, called Dr. Seth Venture.
1: Wow. We'll make sure in the show notes to include links if people are interested in signing up for that. And I have to commend Focus you. I was looking, on health. Yes. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, and I was looking at the uh, agenda that you have posted online for the event in April and... All the talks look absolutely fascinating, but I have to commend your team for building in some also very intriguing um, mental breaks, like a magician yeah. and a chef who's going to show you how to make black truffle risotto. <laughs> so just as appealing as the uh, the the talks by some of the leaders in the field, were these breaks. So just it just seems like it's going to be such an awesome conference for anyone who's going to be there.
0: Yes, thank you. We're expected to be. Here.
1: Yeah. Well, great. Well, well, thanks for
0: having me, Vinti. Yes. Great yes, questions. Thank you so
1: much for your time. Yes. This is extremely insightful and uh, you're welcome back anytime onto the podcast. So thank you.
0: <laughs> thank you.
1: If you enjoyed this episode of CurveBeam Connect with Dr. Stefano Bini, please make sure to subscribe. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere that you might get podcasts. And be sure to visit CurveBeam.com to learn more about our imaging solutions, as well as get a sneak peek into some of the AI solutions that we discussed on this podcast today. Thank you so much.